during today's episode, I'm going to be telling you again about a podcast I think you should check out and the coffee that they sell. It's called Uneffing the Republic, so keep an ear out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the many structures of American government that tilt to favor minority rule and conservatism, which, in our case, is one and the same. Some structures, like the Senate and the filibuster, were intentionally designed to give extra weight to the minority, while others, like gerrymandering and the influence of large-dollar political donors, were... Well, no, I suppose they were also designed for about the same reason, but in a different way. Clips today are from Network for Responsible Public Policy, AJ+, Battleground, The Humanist Report, Counterspin, and Amicus, with an additional members-only clip from the Muckrake Political Podcast. Now, the idea behind a representative democracy is that the system is representative. It's kind of built into the word, right? Representative democracy means we are represented equally. Our system is unrepresentative because of the many ways in which it renders us unequal as citizens. So think think about a couple dimensions of that. Do we as citizens have an equal freedom to vote? The answer is we have no equal freedom to vote because states administer voting systems to make it harder for the party that just doesn't happen to be in power. That typically is African-Americans in states that have Republican administrations because African-Americans vote primarily Democratic, but you don't have to see it as racism. It's just politics. But what that means is that those who are in the party out of power find it harder because of rules designed to make it harder for them to vote or inequalities in access to voting machines or the capacity to vote. That inequality, that inequality suppresses the vote of many. Charles Stewart at MIT estimates in the last election, 16 million Americans found their vote suppressed because of this inequality. Or do we have an equal freedom to vote for president? We do not. Not so much because of the Electoral College, more importantly because of a system called winner-take-all built into the Electoral College. All but two states allocate all of their electoral college votes to the winner of the popular vote. So if you win the plurality by even five votes, by even one vote, you get all of the electoral college votes in that state. But what that means is that this is not the country that picks America, that picks our president. This is the country that picks our president. This country. This country is the country made up of these so-called swing states. Because if you're a candidate running for president, It makes no sense to campaign anywhere except in this country, the country of swing states. In 2016, 95% of campaign appearances were in these states, 99% of campaign spending. The only time candidates went out of these states is when they went to New York or to California to raise money. This is the country that picks our president. These are the swing states. Let's call them the swingers in America. But here's the thing. The swingers don't represent America. They are older. They are wider. Their industry is a kind of 19th century, early 20th century industry. 
There are seven and a half num times the number of people in America working in solar energy as mine coal. But you don't hear of solar energy in presidential elections because those people come from Texas and California. You hear about coal miners because coal miners are in these swing states. So what that means is, if you don't come from a swing state, your vote doesn't matter. And even if you do come from a swing state, if you happen to vote for the minority, your vote will not even be registered because all of the electoral college votes will go to the person who won the majority. So that means in the last election, 85 million people went to the polls to have their vote just not matter in the selection of the president. Or do we have an equal vote in the House of Representatives? And the answer is obviously no, because of gerrymandering. States work hard to draw their districts. I know New Jersey has had a recent fight about whether this would be true or not, and I was very excited to see the extraordinary citizens' movement in New Jersey that stopped partisan gerrymandering in New Jersey. But most states draw their districts to produce safe seats so that they can guarantee which party will win in a particular district. And they draw these districts in this extraordinarily creative way. Christopher Ingraham calls these crimes against geography. <laughs> As you draw the district to guarantee it will produce the result that you want it to produce. But the thing about safe seats is that though they guarantee which party will win, what they also do is mean that the only pol politicians who can challenge the incumbent are politicians who are even more extreme than the incumbent. So if you're a safe seat Republican congressperson, what you're fearful of is an even more extreme right-wing Republican challenger, because it's the base which is typically polarized to the extreme that's going to show up in the primary. Or if you're a safe seat liberal Democrat, what you're worried about is an even more liberal Democrat who will show up uh, and challenge you because you know that the base in the Democratic primary will be the most liberal base. So what that means is Congress people are constantly looking to the extremes because they are constantly fearful that the extremes will challenge them, which produces a system that empowers the extremes relative to the rest of those who would vote which is why Congress right now is polarized far more than America is polarized. That's a product of the system of gerrymandering. And if you add up those whose votes therefore don't matter, it's about 89 million Americans on this dimension who don't have an equal place in our democracy. Or the most extreme, the most grotesque, the most obvious of inequalities is the inequality in the way we fund campaigns. We take it for granted in America that congressional campaigns will be privately funded. And what that means is that candidates for Congress and members of Congress spend their time raising money. Now you think, how much time do they spend raising money? The answer is they spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money. 30 to 70% of their time dialing for dollars, calling people up. Today, when I talked to the kids, they weren't quite sure what this technology was, but seemed to be familiar. But the point is they're calling up these people, sucking up to people with power to raise the money they need to get their party back into power to themselves back into the office. Now, when they're calling for half their time, they're not calling the average American. 
They're calling about 120,000 Americans who are the Americans who give enough to be worth their time to call. Those 120,000 Americans then have enormous power relative to the people who are not called. And as they do this, as members of Congress do this, it affects them. B.F. Skinner gave us this image of the Skinner box, where any stupid animal could learn which buttons it needed to push to get the sustenance it needed to survive. This is a picture of the life of a congressperson right now, <laughs> as they learn through this process which buttons they need to push to get the sustenance they need to survive. It has an effect on them. They develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do might affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shapeshifters, as they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money. Not on issues 1 to 10, but on issues 11 to 1,000. Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. Then to clarify, she went on, you know, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> So this dynamic means some people have enormous power, the funders, and the rest of us don't, which means about 139.5 million Americans have less power because of this feature of our system, while a tiny fraction don't. And if we had to make this actually proportionate, we'd have to cut off four-fifths of the head of this person to make the numbers actually fit the graph. OK, so add all these together. And it's pretty obvious what the consequence is. They don't represent us. In each of these dimensions, they don't represent us. It's not just the money. It's the extremism because of partisanship. It's not just the partisanship. It's the inequality and suppression of vote because of the way administrators make it harder for the other party to vote. It's not just the suppression of vote. It's also the fact the president doesn't care about America. The president cares about that weird country that I showed you by linking together the swing states. Add these all together. They don't represent us. In the United States, every citizen has, technically, the right to have their voice represented in Congress. But not every vote is equal. Take a look at this. This is the population of California, the biggest in the country. And this is the population of Wyoming, the smallest. But in the U.S. Senate, this is how many representatives they each have. Two. California actually has the same population as these 22 states combined. Meaning that while these 39 million people have two senators, these 39 million people get 44. While the presidential election always takes up the most attention, the Senate is where a president's policies and laws can be passed or blocked. This is the first part in our series looking at you versus the system. We'll be diving into how American political and financial systems work against you and sometimes your vote. So let's look at why the U.S. Senate is the way it is and what can be done to make it more fair. The federal government is divided into the executive, judicial, and legislative branches. Laws are passed here, in the two houses of Congress. 
the House of Representatives has 435 members, each one representing around the same number of people across the country. As we've seen, though, the Senate has only 100 members, two per state, regardless of how many people live in those states. This system was designed at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, where the U.S. Constitution was drawn up. The main uh, point of contention at the convention uh, in terms of representation uh, was whether the legislature would reflect um, sort of population differences between the larger and the smaller states or whether all the states would be represented equally. So they came up with a compromise. Two legislatures, one to represent the people and one to represent the states. So the larger states get more representation in the House and the smaller states get, get less. And then they created this second body. The U.S. Senate is, uh, the principle is equal representation for the states. That makes sense when you think about how, back then, the political divide was between states, not political parties like it is today. One of the biggest problems is malapportionment. That is, the extent to which the representatives represent the same number of people. And the U.S. Senate is actually the most malapportioned legislative body on the face of the earth. That malapportionment is also demographic. The smallest, most overrepresented states are whiter, while the larger, more underrepresented states are more ethnically diverse. And that has real consequences because the Senate passes laws and it confirms presidential nominees, including cabinet members, ambassadors, and importantly, Supreme Court justices. But we'll get to that in a bit. For now, think about this. If you add up the population of the 26 smallest states, and they, they can control 52 seats in the Senate, that represents 18% of the population. Right? So it's possible for a, a, you know, a political majority as, uh, to, to, to emerge in the Senate that represents less than one-fifth of the American people. Basically, you can win a majority in the Senate while only winning a minority of voters nationally. And that has a big effect on how the U.S. is governed. This era that we're in where we have really strong partisanship um, means that the Senate can be a place where a political minority sort of clings to power and thwarts progress um, that, that maybe the political majority would like to make. That's why popular progressive policy ideas like the Green New Deal, a wealth tax, legalizing marijuana, a $15 an hour minimum wage, free college, and so on have so much trouble becoming law. So whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump wins the presidential election in 2020, the way they would govern will be shaped by who controls the Senate. But the Senate doesn't just grant a minority blocking power over legislation and give more weight to some people's votes over others. It denies some Americans any say at all. Washington, D.C.'s license plates say taxation without representation, and with good reason. D.C. has just over 700,000 residents, more than Wyoming and Vermont, and just a few less than Alaska and North Dakota. Puerto Rico, meanwhile, is home to more than 3 million Americans. That's more than the population of 20 different states. But the two territories have not been granted statehood, meaning the total number of U.S. senators for D.C. and Puerto Rico is zero. And the Senate has one more rule that's used to check popular policy ideas. Almost every bill needs a supermajority of 60 votes to pass. It's not enough to have more votes than the other side. You need a lot more votes. The supermajority requirements in the U.S. Senate, uh, I think, breed a lot of cynicism and hopelessness about American politics. Because frequently you see either Democrats or Republicans, they take the presidency, they take the House, and they take the Senate. And they still can't get anything done because it's very rare for Democrats or Republicans to control 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. Now let's step back to this. 
Unlike the president or Congress, Supreme Court judges aren't elected. They're appointed for life by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Their decisions shape laws on voting rights, the right of workers to unionize, reproductive rights, who can finance elections. That's why in 2016, the Republican-controlled Senate wouldn't let President Obama nominate Merrick Garland, his candidate for the Supreme Court. This kept a Supreme Court seat vacant, and that strategy paid off when Trump became president and nominated conservative judge Neil Gorsuch for the open position. The Senate, still controlled by Republicans, confirmed Gorsuch and then the following year confirmed Brett Kavanaugh. Following the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Amy Coney Barrett is likely to become the third conservative justice to join the Supreme Court under President Trump. That would cement the court's conservative character for decades to come. So we've established that the Senate doesn't count everyone's vote equally, shuts out millions of Americans, can be controlled by a small minority of voters, has a built-in mechanism for blocking popular legislation, and can, through the Supreme Court, shape laws far into the future. So, does it have to exist? Abolishing the Senate would require a rewrite of the Constitution, meaning the Senate would need to vote to end itself. Unlikely. But there are other things that can be done to make it more fair. For example, there's nothing in the Constitution that says Senate bills need a supermajority. That rule can be changed by a simple majority vote in the Senate itself. The rule still exists because both parties are sort of looking at the future and thinking like, well, the next time I'm in the minority, like I'd like to be able to block the majority from doing anything. And just personally, I feel like a, like a healthier dynamic for our democracy is like, let's compete and, and, and try to beat each other in the elections. But then if we lose, you know, the other party gets to govern. Another improvement would be granting D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. In 2020, the House actually passed a bill to make D.C. the 51st state. But with any future D.C. senators likely to be Democrats, that bill is unlikely to get through a Republican-controlled Senate for now. David Farris actually wrote a book with these and other more radical solutions. I have a proposal to break California into seven pieces, all of which would be Democratic-leaning, presumably would, would produce 14 Democratic senators instead of two out of California. But it would also lessen the difference between California and Wyoming in terms of the voting power of the citizens. You could do that to Texas, you could do that to New York. Now, breaking up states would require those states to first accept the idea, which seems impossible. But that might change when people realize the Senate's inequality is actually getting a lot worse. By 2040, um, 70% of the population will live in just 16 states. This problem, this malapportionment problem in the Senate, is only going to get worse because people seem to be migrating towards the larger states. And so a problem that we feel acutely today, and that's a big problem in our politics, actually will, will get significantly worse over time. By now, you know about our friends and sponsors at the Unfucking the Republic podcast. They cover a range of socioeconomic, political, social, cultural issues, all while swearing. And the righteous anger at injustice is enough motivation for them to want to make the show, but the energy to make a high-quality, research-dense, and richly profane podcast a reality, that requires their special blends of unfucking coffee. Now, the major funding source of their show comes from a partnership they have with a native coffee roaster from a reservation in New York. Every sale of this organic coffee goes to support the roasters on the reservation and the show. So take your pick and enjoy some of their unfuck your morning espresso, unfuck your afternoon black medicine, or the decaffeinated unfucking. What might it give you the energy to do or say? 
Find all of the options to purchase for yourself or as a gift at unftr.com slash shop. You'll be supporting independent journalism, indigenous economic development, and the health-giving tradition of obscenity with every purchase. Again, check them out at unftr.com slash shop or through the link in our show notes. You mentioned 2010, that that was essentially the watershed year for Republicans. Coming off a Tea Party wave, Obama's his first two years in office, basically we reduce our state legislatures by half, if I remember correctly, right? We just lose tons and tons of state legislative seats and governorships. And we're now at that moment again. We're 10 years later. It's 2020. We have a census year. What the heck is going on right now around the country with these maps? Give us a state of play of what you're observing. I mean, Republicans are preparing to administer a very aggressive gerrymander. And they have the additional bonus of gaining seats from the reapportionment of the House of Representatives. So I live in Illinois. Every 10 years, Illinois just loses another seat because no one wants to live here, I guess, even though it's actually really nice. I live one mile from an inland ocean. You should should come here. It's great. (laughs) But we lost a House seat and it's going to Texas and it's going to Florida. So Texas got two, Florida got one, and they have Republican trifectas in both of those places. And they have the additional benefit of knowing that Democrats have been gaining strength in some of the suburban areas, particularly in Texas, but also in Florida. So they know where the Democratic voters are. They're going to draw those districts as aggressively as possible without running afoul of the few remaining protections against it. Uh, In other words, they can eliminate some Democratic seats so that our four-seat majority at this point, like just rerun the 2020 election on the new maps, Democrats would lose the House. We've talked about like the cardinal sin of Democrats in 2010. It wasn't even against a plan that was a secret. Like, Karov took an op-ed in March 2010, ahead of the election, and said, here are the hundred or so seats we're going to target, we're going to flip them, we're going to spend X amount of money doing it, and we're doing it specifically for this goal. It was never even like low-key under the radar. You know, you mentioned secretaries of state as one of the roles that we can control, you know, county elected officials as one of the roles that we can control. We could repeat the same mistakes of 2010 again if we're not careful. I mean, in some ways we already have. Yeah. <laughs> 2020 was a redistricting year election. And Democrats, to their credit, invested a lot of money in state legislative races and just lost them anyway. In some places, really shocking Mm -hmm. outcomes like in New Hampshire, where Republicans gained seats, even though Biden did really well. I personally think that was because Biden did not demonize Republicans enough. (laughs) That's my pet theory is he gave people like this permission structure to say, like, vote for me to fix the country. But feel free to go vote for your Republican friends in, in the state legislature because they're fundamentally harmless people who appeared several times at the uh, at the DNC. But yeah, so we, we didn't do what we needed to do mm-hmm. last year in terms of recapturing enough state legislative chambers. Any, any state legislative chambers. Not a single one. Yeah. But yeah, so that already happened, right? And so that, that ship has kind of sailed. Mm-hmm. And the scary thing is that like everybody's talking about HR1 as if this can fix the problem. But it has to happen pretty soon. Yeah. Because these maps will get made. Right people will start running for those seats. It's not like if Manchin and Cinema come around next summer and pass HR1, they'll be like, okay, stop the presses. We're going to redraw all the maps and just hang with us. It'll be too late. You know, it'll be too late to fight the 2022 midterms on fair ground. This is a critical point. Mm-hmm. Walk people through that just for a second, David. So you're saying that we need to pass it, let's say this year, before the end of the year, need to change the filibuster in order to do that. So everyone understands you can change the Senate filibuster. And if we were to pass this voting rights bill, 
then it would mandate that all of these states would have to create independent commissions in order to redraw their congressional maps. Is that right? And you're saying in order to stand all of those up across 50 states, it'll take some time. And if we wait another year, those maps will have already been drawn. Right. So I think you could get it done if the bill was passed by the end of this year. I think it would be doable. It'd be tough. It'd be tough. But like, you remember when Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court redrew the Pennsylvania state map, and they did that actually fairly early in 2018 Mm -hmm. in time to have that be the map for the 2018 midterms. Now, the laws vary by state, right? So that might not be possible in every single state. The other problem is that Democrats could pass HR1 tomorrow morning, and the nonpartisan redistricting stuff is going to end up in court. Yeah. They have no leg to stand on, but they're going to sue anyway. Mm-hmm. And some crazy judge in like the Fifth Circuit is going to smack it down. It's going to end up in the front of the Supreme Court. And while that's all happening, some of the Republican states could just say, well, we're not going to do it. And Florida could say, but we're not going to do it anyway. <laughs> like, well, how are you going to make me redraw the maps? And so we need enough time for those legal battles to play out in court in order to actually get those maps in place. And if we don't do that, you might as well just wait until 2023 and take your chances next year because there won't be enough time to do it. So time is of the essence, like the clock is ticking and that law needs to be passed well before the midterms really start to ramp up. So I just don't see the urgency among Democrats that they understand that. I, right, uh, to that point. <laughs> I, assume <laughs> your, your, I assume your prognostication at this juncture is that let's assume the Voting Rights Act, the HR 1S1 is not passed for the People Act. right now. If you had to run the 2022 elections, the congressional elections across the country, you're assuming that we just lose the House because of the way that those districts have been carved up. Yes. So there haven't been a ton of special elections, but there have been a few. The vibe that we get is that the national environment, interestingly, seems relatively unchanged from November 2020. Mm -hmm. So Democrats have done a couple points better in some of these races, a couple points worse. But we're not seeing what we saw in 2017, which is like Republicans getting blown out of the water or falling way, way short of expectations in some of these special elections. But if you take Biden's approval rating, which remains pretty good for the polarization era, right? Like not historically, but right. like for the last 20 years, okay, it's pretty good. The generic ballot number where they ask people, you know, Republican or Democrat next year, Democrats have maintained a reasonable edge in that number that's similar to 2020. And so you might think, wow, we're doing good, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in some ways, the early days of the Biden administration have been, I think, better than some people thought. Mm-hmm. COVID relief bill went well beyond some of my expectations personally. But even taking all that into account, like we have the same advantages nationally that we had eight months ago, I think that we would still lose the House. So primarily, we're going to lose seats in Florida and Texas. Those are the big ones. Now, we may get a seat in Colorado, maybe get a seat in Arizona, although probably not because Republicans control the, the architecture there. But then you also have like all of these Republican trifectas that have another opportunity to redesign the gerrymander from 2010. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that gerrymander has expired. Right? That's why Democrats were able to seize the House in 2018, even though some observers, if you remember back to 2018, some people were like, Democrats have to win the House vote by 10, 11 points in order to take the House. And that turned out not to be true because Republicans were bleeding support in the suburbs and they were bleeding support from college educated white voters. And that has changed the maps a little bit. But now we're giving them another crack at it. Right. You know, they know where they've lost support and where they've gained support and they will draw the maps accordingly. And Democrats have tied their own hands in their biggest state of California. Like, we can't do this to them because we got behind a nonpartisan redistricting measure there, which, of course, is the right thing to do. 
but it's like we're surrendering unilaterally. And let's play this out to the following election cycle. So Democrats lose the House very likely in 2022. Senate, let's assume we lose the Senate as well. We then have a 2024 presidential election, along with another congressional and Senate election in which is compounded by four years now of voter suppression laws being passed on the state level, and more rigging of the architecture of these elections in a number of key battleground states. So what happens in a 2024 election? Do we have one? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's a good question. I think we'll still have an election, right? The question is whether the voters of this country will have any meaningful opportunity to have their voice heard as a majority. You know, the Electoral College advantage of the Republican Party, I was shocked by this, honestly. It got worse between 2016 and 2020. Mm -hmm. So that the tipping point state, the state that provided the 270th electoral vote to Joe Biden, was over four points more Republican than the rest of the country. So that's the baseline. And then maybe it'll change between now and then. But you don't generally get huge demographic shifts between elections that unfold over a longer period of time. So let's say for the sake of argument that the natural advantage of the Republicans in the Electoral College is four points. That means Biden could win the national popular vote by three and a half points. You know, I don't know what that would be, seven, eight million votes and just lose. Like they don't have to steal it if they just win. And the fact that some of these voter suppression laws are on the books or are being pushed in states that will actually be competitive Mm -hmm. in 2024 gives them an even greater advantage. Right? So this is happening in Arizona, which is a very closely divided state. So that's scary, right? And so Republicans could just win it outright on the basis of their structural advantages and the voter suppression laws that they've already put into place. And I think that's the hope, right? I don't think anybody in the GOP actually wants to have to steal the election. Like That would be too much hassle. Uh, um, <laughs> some of them might. <laughs> some of them might. It'd be a thrill ride for them. But um, let's say that something similar to last year happens in 2024. You know, let's give Biden the national vote by five points, and he wins very narrowly across Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Let's take a state away from him just to be realistic. Okay, let's say that Trump just wins Arizona. You know, you have three, four, five states that provide Biden the margin of victory. They're all very close within tens of thousands of votes, and they are all controlled by Republicans because we lost the governorships in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin next year. We lost the Secretary of State offices there. They usually vote the same way, but rare, with rare exceptions. Mm-hmm. But we lose all those offices. So we have no control over what happens in these states. And two days after the election, it looks like Biden has won all three of them. And then you start to see the claims of fraud from, I don't know if Trump is going to run or if DeSantis or Ron DeSantis or whatever maniac is going to get this nomination, right? And they say the drumbeat of fraud, you know, like I, I saw in Detroit on election night, some brown people were voting. It's not right. And the legislature just appoints Trump or DeSantis's electors, and the Republican governor signs it, and the Secretary of State signs off on it. Who's going to stop them? Mm-hmm. They will forward those electors to Congress. Perhaps the Democratic minorities and those legislatures will send alternate slates of electors, so that when Kamala Harris goes to count the electoral votes on January 6, 2025, she'll have two sets of them from multiple states. And a strict reading of the Electoral Count Act says that she has to open them if they purport to be legitimate. Mm. This is what happens when you allow the democratic architecture of your country to be steered by 140-year-old laws. It's it's so crazy. But that's what would happen. The underlying tension of all this is that democratic policies are more popular, that the demographics are in our favor. You know, you've also written uh, much about how, like, young people are trending more democratic, and that only continues over time because your political ideas are basically formed in your, like, early 20s. So that structurally, Democrats can never win. But mathematically, we should win and quite handily. Yeah, I think that there is probably today, roughly like a natural four or five point Democratic advantage in the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I don't know what we want to call it, 5248-ish, something like that. It's getting more pronounced over time because Republicans have been losing incoming 18-year-old voters for close to 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And some of those voters are now my age. They're in their early 40s. And they're not making any inroads with young people who are entering the electorate. So the strongest Republican voters are dying off slowly. If you want to feel good about something, look at the exit polling from 2020. Now, I know exit polls are not perfect, right? But like mm -hmm. you can see trend lines, even if the data is not perfect. Trump got slaughtered with voters under 45 in Ohio. Mm -hmm. He got slaughtered with voters under 45 in Wisconsin. So some of these states that are presumed to be moving in a Republican direction are actually dependent on these older cohorts who are dying off. And so in the medium term, I'm very confident that Democrats will enter the 2028, 2032, 2036 elections with pretty significant advantages in the national popular vote. And the thing that I'm most worried about right now is will American democracy survive mm -hmm. until that time, until young people have entered the electorate in large enough numbers to flip some of these states that have been voting Republican or to reinforce some of the Democratic-leaning purple states like Georgia or something. It's a Republican-leading purple state right now, but like the trend line is in one direction. So yeah. the smart Republicans know this, okay? They know that demographics are working against them. And of course, you can see shifts in, in each party's coalitions that can cut into some of these trends. Democrats lost some ground with Latino voters last year. It almost cost us the election. But if you take the last 40 years, Biden's performance among that group was pretty much middle of the pack, right? So you need to see these things happening in more than one election to draw some firm conclusions. But fundamentally, Republicans are facing a long-term apocalypse, and that is driving I think their short-term turn to authoritarianism because they actually don't really think that they can win elections free and fair anymore. And so the only choice left is either to accept that you now live in a multiracial democracy and you have to make some policy concessions, or you eliminate democracy and you live in some form of authoritarianism, or the country breaks up, right? Like if they do this, I would want to secede. I would, you know, I would want my governor to, yeah. to get out, you know? I was just thinking the great nation state of New York will be really nice. Right. <laughs> and we're, you know, we're mostly contiguous, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, but not entirely. And it would be a catastrophe oh, because, I mean, there's more Democrats in the state of Texas than there are in Illinois, right? I mean, like people are not distributed evenly by state. It's so unfathomable to think about. But if Republicans succeed in this election theft plot, I really fear for the integrity of the United States as a polity. When it comes to the Republican Party's ongoing assault on our democracy, we might not be seeing much movement in Congress. However, thankfully, Biden's Department of Justice is actually going after Republicans who are functionally trying to rig elections in their favor by doing voter suppression and explicitly partisan gerrymandering. So as David Nakamura and Devlin Barrett of the Washington Post explain, the Justice Department has sued Texas for the second time in a month over voting-related concerns, this time alleging that Republican state lawmakers discriminated against Latinos and other minorities when they approved new congressional and state legislative districts that increased the power of white voters. Attorney General Merrick Garland's announcement on Monday marked the Biden administration's first major legal action on redistricting. It comes at a time when the U.S. House is narrowly controlled by Democrats, many GOP-controlled state legislatures are tightening voting restrictions, and both parties are trying to draw maps to their own advantage ahead of the 2022 midterms and 2024 presidential election. While the Supreme Court has declined to put limits on partisan gerrymandering, it is illegal to draw lines that are unfair to racial and ethnic minorities. The 2020 census showed that the Texas 
Texas population had grown dramatically over the past decade by nearly 4 million people. Most of that growth was among minority populations, with white Texans accounting for only about 5% of the increase. The growth means that the number of Texas seats in the U.S. House of Representatives will rise from 36 to 38. Texas is the only state to gain two seats. Rather than reflect the surging Latino voting strength in the state, the Justice Department argues the new districts would unfairly and illegally dilute their representation. So they're pretty brazen about this. This is a very explicit attempt to disenfranchise Latino voters who would disproportionately vote in favor of Democrats as opposed uh, to Republicans. Now, looking at a map, it really becomes even more clear how brazen they are. So compare the current map to the new map. And as you can see here, safe Republican seats have nearly doubled in Texas. But if district lines were drawn fairly, they would not have that many safe seats. They would lose safe seats given the demographic changes in that state. So the fact that this happens in the United States and it has always happened and it's getting worse, I mean, it should worry people. This is an erosion of democracy. This is a watering down of representation. It's brazen. And it's not like Democrats don't also do partisan gerrymandering, but the solution is to just not do partisan gerrymandering. There's a bill in Congress right now that the Democrats have not passed because they are refusing to get rid of the filibuster. That's called the For the People Act. It would outsource the redrawing of district lines to independent nonpartisan commissions. So they're not trying to draw lines based on which party is going to be successful. They're trying to draw lines on how to best represent a particular district. That's the way that it should be. And Republicans do not support this. So overall, even if both parties engage in gerrymandering, Democrats are the only one to give them credit where it's due who's trying to take action, or at least they're signaling their support for action. But whether or not they're going to abolish the filibuster and actually get it done is a different story. Now, aside from partisan gerrymandering, the DOJ has also targeted other states that have cracked down on voting rights, namely Georgia. So in June, the Justice Department sued Georgia over new statewide voting measures that federal authorities allege purposefully discriminate against African-Americans. And last month, the department sued Texas over a separate law that federal officials say would disenfranchise eligible voters, including older Americans and people with disabilities, by banning 24-hour and drive-through voting and giving partisan poll watchers more access. So it is important that the DOJ is taking action. But having said that, though, I want people to understand that this shouldn't be the only avenue that Democrats pursue in trying to protect voting rights and further enhance democracy. They have to pass the For the People Act. They have to pass any voting rights reform. But who knows if they're actually going to get that done, given the limited amount of time left. I mean, 2022 is right around the corner. And going into this next year, they're going to be shifting gears. They're no longer going to be hyper fixated on legislating. And instead, they're going to be thinking about their own electoral prospects. So we're going to see a shift in priorities. And you can't just change priorities and focus on the election without getting really important things done, like the For the People Act, voting rights reform. But I would argue that most Democrats will do that. But who knows? I hope that they prove me wrong. You have to fix this issue because the harder or the longer that you wait to fix these issues that are plaguing our democracy, the harder it gets to actually fix them. 
the momentum is rolling in the opposite direction currently, and we see a full-on assault on democracy by Republicans and Democrats, most elected Democrats, just aren't taking this seriously enough. I can't necessarily say that about the House, but Senate Democrats, I mean, if they truly cared, they would be calling on their colleagues to abolish the filibuster. But we've come to a point where Democrats have chosen the filibuster over democracy itself, and that may sound hyperbolic, but it's true. You're not going to have time again. In the event Democrats lose in 2022, I mean, these districts will be redrawn for a decade. So you're likely not going to have full control of government for a very, very long time, most likely. So things that you don't get done now, I think it's logical to expect them to not be accomplished within 10 years. So now is the time to act. Now is the time to not just do voting rights reform and end gerrymandering, but uh, pass a minimum wage increase. Do things that enhance democracy and make it so that way we're not constantly going backwards, constantly worrying about Republicans stealing elections. But they are just not serious enough about this. And it's because Democrats just don't have the desire to fight. They could be taking meaningful action right now when it comes to improving people's lives. Hell, who knows where Build Back Better stands? Will we even see the investment in climate change that was promised? We don't know. But what we do know is that the time to act is running out. And it's good that the DOJ is taking action. But this can't be the only route that you pursue. You've got to do more. You've got to protect the vote. You've got to expand voting rights and get rid of barriers to voting. Voting should be easier, not difficult, but increasingly that is unfortunately the case because of Republicans. So, you know, they're going to win by cheating. And if you know this and you're not doing anything about it, I can't help but think that you're complicit here. Well, it's obligatory shopping season again, and we have merch for you to buy. But better than that, you can help support the show with other purchases, too. When you check out our merch at bestoftheleft.com slash shop, you'll be taken to our store on a platform that includes our stuff, in addition to literally thousands of designers and an untold number of final products, including apparel, stickers, buttons, magnets, phone and computer cases, masks, pillows, tapestries, notebooks, and even more. Honestly, it's sort of ridiculous. And the best part is that a portion of your purchase will go to the show regardless of whether you buy our merch or anyone else's when you start shopping at bestofleft.com shop. So you can go there and find something for everyone on your list this year. Or, you know, give the gift of an experience that will become a cherished memory if you're into that sort of thing. Oh, speaking of which, there are Best of the Left gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support as well. That's kind of like an experience. So that's bestoftheleft.com slash shop for merch and slash support for gift memberships. At FAIR, we're not about blaming the people. You might remember your high school civics class, and you might read the Times or the Washington Post every day, and you can still be misinformed or underinformed about, in this case, what the filibuster is and what it does. So just to start somewhere, I think many people of a certain age, but even beyond that, I think many people think about Jimmy Stewart, you know, when Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he's talking himself hoarse on the Senate floor in a fight against corruption and, and cronyism. 
uh, Deadline ran a piece recently noting that even when that movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, came out in 1939, the filibuster already had a history associated with blocking civil rights legislation, and particularly Southern senators filibustering a bill against lynching, a bill that huge numbers of the public supported. So if we're talking emblems of the history of the filibuster, maybe less Jimmy Stewart, more Strom Thurmond, would you say? (laughs) Yeah, today, as it stands, the majority party in the Senate is required to find 60 votes to end debate on any legislation. But Congress or, or the Senate has definitely limited the power of the majority to actually enact their agenda The minority party doesn't have to marshal all these votes on the floor. They don't have to marshal people to talk indefinitely to try to filibuster a piece of legislation. And instead, what basically happens is the the process will just continue. No, No legislation can advance unless the majority party can together marshal 60 votes on the Senate floor. So they don't have to talk until they're hoarse. They just have to say, we're again it. Yeah, the onus is really on the majority party to produce their votes rather than on the minority party to to stand there on the floor to, to talk their faces off. Yeah, it's, the onus is completely on the majority party at this point. Well, it's interesting. It's seen as protecting the minority. That's one sort of thing that you hear. And then it's also maybe even more frequently talked about as preserving bipartisan collegiality, uh, or said differently, forcing Democrats and Republicans to work together. But I mean, you know, is that what it is? I mean, it, it, it seems like at this point, it's really more cynical and, and even more sinister than that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, some people like to think that the Senate is just intrinsically supposed to be this cooling saucer as the way the the founders intended. But yeah, it's there hasn't been much collegiality between the parties for quite a while. And I guess it could work, you know, in theory, where like there's some give and take on legislation. But one of the primary issues here is that there's not any kind of agreement between Democrats and Republicans on the type of legislation or like what the what the broader issues are that Congress should be addressing. It's not like, okay, we're going to take a certain issue and, you know, let's hear your side of it and let's hear our side of it. The issue is more that Republicans just are never going to agree to pass any kind of priority agenda items from Democrats even if it was a watered-down version. And I mean, I think we've seen that a lot. A pretty classic example of it's the Affordable Care Act debate under President Obama. Democrats proposed legislation that is actually fairly conservative. The Affordable Care Act was basically an outgrowth of the Heritage Foundation idea. Years ago, Mitt Romney had passed legislation as the governor of Massachusetts enacting the kind of like first test case for that type of legislation. And there were zero Republican votes for it at all, no matter how watered down the bill got. You know, Democrats didn't include ideas like a public health insurance option or Medicare expansion 
you know, stuff we're still talking about today, those were on the table back in, in 2009 and 2010, and Democrats didn't include any of them, and there were zero Republican votes for the bill. And now, you know, we have Mitch McConnell saying this week that he's 100% focused on stopping Joe Biden's administration, very similar to what he, he said under Obama. So it sounds weird when you then turn to Joe Manchin, who says, well, we can't give up on working together. It just seems like one of these things is not like the other. But I just in terms of point of information, Democrats, if they wanted to, could end the filibuster tomorrow. Is that right? And there are reasons that they should want to not kick it down the road. There are reasons that if they really do want to put through their agenda or what we understand to be their agenda, that now is a whole lot better than later. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it, Democrats can nuke the filibuster if they find 50 votes plus the vote from Kamala Harris as, as vice president. They can nuke the filibuster whenever they want. They could attempt to do that on the Senate floor. And yeah, there's very good reason to do it now, which is that Democrats right now, even though they have a very small Senate majority, they, they control both houses of Congress and the presidency, which means that they can actually enact whatever they want in that case without Republican input. And, you know, not to sound too partisan, but like, I think it's understood at this point, Republicans are not going to support any of Joe Biden's agenda. They've said it. Yeah. Yeah, they've they've been pretty open about it. And there's just, you know, a million different things that now is the time to pass. For instance, we haven't had a minimum wage increase in, in 12 years. It just was never passed during the Obama administration. It just, and the reason, you know, in part was because Democrats didn't start talking about it until after they lost control of the House. And Republican Speaker John Boehner obstructed the agenda and wouldn't have it. So, yeah, now is the time that Democrats actually have full power to pass Joe Biden's agenda, you know, whether it's one I like or whether it's one that's weak and, and moderate, and you know, what have you. Yeah. It's the only time any of that's going to happen because there's a very good chance that Democrats lose control of the Senate soon. And in fact, you know, they can lose control of the Senate next November, but they could also happen literally any day because they have a 50-50 majority there and a whole bunch of old, old senators. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, it just is one health event away from a shift there. I have a question that I feel like could be a question about everything we have talked about tonight and everything we could talk about for the next six hours, which is just the tit for tat question. So somebody is essentially saying, right, so we ditch the filibuster. And then what happens when the Republicans win back control of Congress and the presidency? And by the way, we could have that conversation about court reform. We could have it about uh, uh, almost any sort of democracy reform we've talked about. What's your what's your uh, kind of back of the envelope answer for tit for tat or spiral to the bottom? Well, there, there's sort of a, a brass tax political argument, and then there's a, there's a broader argument. And the, the brass tax argument is that, you know, uh, if, if you don't get rid of it now and pass the stuff that we want to pass, Republicans will just get rid of it when they're in power and pass the stuff they want to pass anyway. Um, and I think that's a pretty solid bet that they'll do that. Um, you know, it's, you, you are, you know, look at it from a sort of strategic uh 
analysis, um, by leaving it in place right now, we are guaranteeing that we will not pass things like voting rights, HR1, uh, gun control legislation, a whole raft of, of immediate urgent priorities. So you're incurring a huge cost up front uh, to yourself and to our democracy. You're probably also making it easier for Republicans to get back in power faster um, by not passing uh, voting rights and, and democracy reform. So you're, you're accelerating the, 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 you know, the, the doomsday scenario where they are in power. Um, and, and so you're incurring that cost and you're, you're doing it in order to maintain this defensive uh, tactic that you hope will come in handy for us when the other side's in power. So what happens, though, when you incur that massive cost to yourself up front, then the other side gets in power. And with a flick of his wrist, Mitch McConnell just gets rid of that defensive tactic that you incurred that cost in order to keep. Um, so, you know, I think it's a bad idea to incur that cost up front and just sort of cross your fingers and hope that Mitch McConnell doesn't yank that away from you uh, when he wants to, because I think uh, you the overwhelming odds are that he will. Um, so that's that's the sort of the brass tax answer is that you know we, we have power now. Democrats do so they should they should do as much as they can with it um, because Republicans will probably just just you know do all the bad stuff anyway when they're back in power. The more philosophical answer is just that it, it actually the to the you know on balance the filibuster is a tool that that benefits the conservative side of the ideological spectrum far more than the progressive side. So on net, it is something that it overwhelmingly benefits progressives to get rid of. It is a tool that makes it harder to pass things. Progressives are the party that wants to pass big change. Conservatives are the party that want to stand athwart history, yelling "stop" in William F. Buckley's famous phrase. Um, you look at and then historically, progressive benefits and expansions of rights have proven extremely hard to undo legislatively. They're easy to do through the courts to roll back. Um, but legislatively, they're extremely difficult to undo. You look at Obamacare, which after it passed was extremely unpopular with the public. Republicans campaigned for seven years on repealing it. As soon as they got back in power, they tried to repeal it through that process called reconciliation, which means they only needed a majority to repeal it. So the filibuster was no help to Democrats in stopping the, re- the effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But Republicans couldn't muster a majority to repeal it because what happened it got popular when they tried to take it away. When you try to take progressive benefits away from people, it becomes very hard because people realize they like it. So I think when you when you take the brass tax uh, analysis and you take the sort of larger strategic analysis together, um, the only conclusion you can really come to is that this is something that, while it does pose some risk in getting rid of it, overwhelmingly benefits Republicans more than Democrats. So Democrats should get rid of it, pass the things they want to pass, um, because that is the, you know, on balance, the best, the, by far the best thing for them to do. Ellie? I just wanted to add that the same argument, the same argument basically works when you talk about court expansion. So you put four justices on the court and then the Republicans get in and they put eight justices on the court. Well, well, what, where does it end? Why does it have to end? Who cares? Again, in step one, if you put four justices on the court that are going to protect the 15th Amendment, then it makes it much more unlikely that the Republicans ever take back all of government again, which is what they would need to repack the court. A. B. How is it worse if they repack the court? We're already down. If something happens and now in six or eight years, the Republicans are back on top, that's no worse than it is right now. And then C, as I've said, there are great reasons to have more justices on the court that go beyond partisan politics. And so even if you were talking about a a court that is 50 people, 80 people, like that's actually still better than what we have now. People forget our Supreme Court is unique kind of in the Western industrialized world in that it is A, so small, but B, so powerful. 
No other Western industrialized Supreme Court can just declare an act of the popularly elected legislator unconstitutional because five dudes say so? Are you kidding me? That's not a power most other places have. That's a power that we have. So changing the bar to five dudes think it's unconstitutional to, I don't know, 45 how is that bad? So, like, as Adam's saying with 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 the with the filibuster reform, yes, there are doomsday scenarios where Republicans grab all the power and use it to do awful things. But those things are awful, and a lot of times they're unpopular. So, do the things that you can do right now to do popular things and make it harder for them ever to win back power again. And if they do, and they decide to do awful things, you're in no worse position than you are than you are before. And if I could just add one point to what, to what Ellie's saying, I think he's making, you know, I agree with everything he's saying. I think there's powerful points. And, and the thing about the filibuster is that by making co- the legislative branch of government dysfunctional, it is shifting power to the executive branch and to the judiciary. And so if progressives, the pro- things that progressives want to pass are by and large very popular. The things Republicans want to pass are by and large unpopular. The easier way to do unpopular things is to have them be done through the executive branch and through the judiciary so that elected officials in Congress don't have to vote for them. So by jamming up the legislative branch and dispersing more power to the other branches of government, you are making it easier for Republicans and conservatives to achieve the unpopular things that they want to do. Um, you know, legislative change is is hard to do, and, and members are very responsive to public opinion. So if you are the side that has the more popular agenda items and the other side has the less popular agenda items, you want that fight to happen in the legislative branch, because that is where people are most responsive to public opinion. That's why Republicans couldn't get 50 votes to repeal Obamacare, because it became extremely unpopular. So it is in our interest to sort of herd the action back to where it should be, which is the legislative branch, because that's where public opinion, which is on our side, has the most impact. So so um, talk about big roadrunner clocks. We're ticking down out of time, but I want to ask you each uh, as briefly as you can, only uh, because the hook is coming, uh, to just give folks a sense of if you care about democracy reform, if you care about voting rights, if you can put effort into one thing or another, um, what should, and I know Ellie's going to say, walk and chew gum, like all of it, all of it right now. <laughs> but I think like people really, I think, are overwhelmed by the sort of enormity of the structural challenges. What are you telling people to do as a sort of ask as an action item, Adam. Well, look, if you if you live in West Virginia or Arizona, I would say call your senators at uh, Cinema and Mansion um, immediately, because I think that, you know, elevating this issue, you know, the filibuster reform is a, is a weedy Senate uh, issue uh, that, that, you know, I think a lot of lawmakers don't think is uh, grabs the public attention. But, you know, they listen to the calls that come into their office. So so calling them, uh, meeting with them, you know, demonstrating public support is important. But I also think it's not just Cinema and Mansion. There's a lot of Democratic senators out there um, that, that that need to hear from people. So and if they're on the right side, call them up and thank them because that firms up their support. So make those phone calls, make those meetings. You know, if, if you know, we're emerging and people are vaccinated and, and you can do in-person things again and it's safe, you know, do all that in a safe and COVID compliant um, way. Uh, so but that is critically important because this is an issue that, that, you know, even a few years ago was so far in the weeds that nobody was talking about. I think we've come a long way. Um, 
Um, it, it's more front and center now than it has been in a long time, but we need to keep the pressure on and we need to keep telling senators that we're watching them, that we're thanking them if they're doing the right thing, but if they're not, that we are uh, demanding that they that they do the right thing. That that those calls, those meetings, those texts, those those uh, emails really do matter. Having been on the inside, having seen how much senators pay attention to to the feedback they get from their constituents, it really does matter. Ellie, I'll go with uh, obviously all of the above, but um, I'll I'll pick up where Adam uh, said about what they're actually afraid of. Right, this summer they're coming home. And we we probably will not have filibuster reform or court expansion or anything like that by the time we hit the summer. So I would say show up, show up loudly. They're coming home. Get your two shots, put on a mask and go out and show out and show these people what you think about these issues. Because Adam's exactly right. They come this first break, this 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 summer break before, you know, they're, they'll be, uh, which is the kickoff to their midterm reelection campaign. They care about this break more than anything else. And if you yell at them, if you confront them, if you are in their face and saying, where is my reform? I voted for you. Where is my reform? Like that will matter to them. That's how uh, people forget how. Why didn't, why didn't Republicans have enough votes to kill Obamacare after, after running on it for set, for, for seven years? Because people rose up. Because people rose up. Why did Derek Chauvin get arrested and charged and convicted? Because people rose up. Like at some point, it, it does become an issue of, us, the people, ourselves, standing up, masking up, and going out into the streets and demanding better from our elected officials. We've just heard clips today starting with the Network for Responsible Public Policy featuring Professor Lawrence Lessig explaining many of the ways our government functions to not represent the people. AJ Plus focused on the Senate, how it came about and how it works. Battleground pressed on the urgency of passing H.R. 1 before Democrats likely lose control of the House of Representatives. The Humanist Report looked at the DOJ's effort to sue Texas and Georgia over their gerrymandering efforts. Counterspin focused on the filibuster, and Amicus ran down a list of democracy-saving policies and urged all of us to show up at town halls and in Senate offices demanding action. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Muckrake Political Podcast getting more than a little dark when discussing the fascistic movement behind the push for minority rule in America. I'm sure you track this. All they're writing about the need for an American Caesar. And also, here's one your listeners may have encountered online. This is how powerful and how vast their tentacles are. When you have these right-wing bloviator, fake smart people on these internet forums, even if they ain't in Russia, talking about, oh, America is a republic is not a democracy. That's straight right-wing, Claremont, Heritage, etc., Heritage Foundation, rather, talking point 101 right there. 
to hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now today, I have a bit more to say on human nature. In the previous episode, I responded to caller David from West Los Angeles, a conservative who was making a good-faith effort to have some cross-partisan understanding. For instance, he's a longtime listener of the show, even though he generally disagrees with most everything we say. And he laid out the long-standing conservative idea that liberals simply don't understand human nature and tend to try to create policies that won't work due to their fatal flaws relating to human nature. For my initial thoughts on why it is not the right, who seem to be taking their cues from passed-down folk wisdom, so-called common sense, and the deeply negative view of humanity informed by Christianity, but actually the left— who tends to believe much more in experimentation and empirical evidence, who is better suited to develop policy that fits the actual needs of people, check out my final comments in the episode uh, 1459. But after that, I got thinking more about the relationship between public policy, religion, and human nature, and thought back to a pretty recent interview on the Ezra Klein show that we featured Uh, Well, I don't know when it originally aired, but we featured it recently, and it was about a tribal society. You know, an anthropologist was talking about a tribal society that had a culture of insulting the meat. And in short, this story is that this culture, they, they maintain a very egalitarian society, which is mostly not too hard, probably, with not that much wealth floating around, but meat and the hunters who bring it tends to be one of the few things that really threatens to throw off the balance. Because people love the meat, right? High-density protein. How can you say no? And so it would be very natural to praise and exalt the hunters, which would put them in a position of power and prestige in the community. And this seems like a very natural human instinct. Praise the people who bring the meat so they'll bring more meat. But counterintuitively, it is in their culture to do the opposite as a strategy for maintaining an egalitarian society. They criticize the hunters and the meat as a way of preventing those hunters from sort of getting big heads or expecting special treatment or anything like that. So here's the question. If their culture goes so obviously against their nature... Does that mean that their culture and this policy of insulting the meat, is it wrong in a sort of similar way that conservatives argue that liberal policies that go against human nature are wrong and wouldn't work? This is a policy that has worked for them. It has survived the ages and has helped maintain their society. And so in that way, it's clearly not wrong, but is a successful policy in their culture. So that got me thinking about the relationship between human nature and government policy. Is culture and the policies we create in our culture merely there to uphold our human nature, or are those policies there to help alter our nature, at least to some degree? Because let's take David's supposition as granted for a moment. Liberals attempt to implement policies that go against human nature. 
how would that be massively different than the church warning against sin, which it is in the nature of humans to commit? I would argue that the point of culture, religion, and government policy is to alter our individual natures in ways that are socially beneficial and lead to cohesion, which means that the conservative argument against policies that go against human nature is sort of on its face kind of silly. Because if individual human nature was already in tune with the needs of broader society, there'd be no need for government policy or religion at all, which is an idea only adhered to by libertarians, who, to put it delicately, are wrong. Now, that's where I thought I was going to be finishing with this thought, but then something else occurred to me. So, this idea of liberals not understanding human nature, it's such a classic talking point. I've heard it so many times and for so long that I started realizing it may fit in with this sort of collection of other talking points that goes back decades and, and which we've mostly forgotten the original purposes of or the origins of. The, the other that comes immediately to mind is we live in a republic, not a democracy. Now, to start off, that is a nonsense phrase. A republic is a type of democracy, just like a square is a type of rhombus. You would never say, I've drawn a square, not a rhombus. You just wouldn't say that. Not all democracies are republics, but all republics are democracies. A direct democracy isn't a republic, but a republic is a representative democracy. Democracy is in the definition of it. You can't get away from that. So there's this nonsense phrase that has become pretty widely believed on the right, even if people don't fully understand what they mean when they say it. I mean, perhaps they think the left believes we live in a direct democracy, but I think that's being too generous. More to the point, I'm willing to bet that most of them have no idea where that talking point came from, but just sort of accept it as truthiness, right? Like, it just sounds right. The origin of the phrase, or at least the reason we've all heard it shouted by a conservative at least a few times in our lives, is because of the Cold War, and more specifically, the John Birch Society. If you don't know about them, think of the John Birch Society as sort of the Tea Party of their day, but probably also with a dash of QAnon. But instead of trying to catch Democrats drinking baby blood, they were trying to catch communists. They were, and actually they still exist, so technically they still are on the far right of American politics and are very prone to believing in conspiracy theories. So anyway, those are the guys who really catapulted the idea that the U.S. is a republic and not a democracy. It's nonsense, but it's understandable considering the source. The point of that phrase and why it only could have come from the right is to undermine the idea of democracy itself, and they're pretty upfront about this. They are not fans of democracy, and they will tell you so. But they couldn't just go around telling everyone that we need to get rid of the democratic republic that our founders set up. That would never gain traction. Instead, they tried and have had pretty impressive success in convincing a large portion of the population that we don't need to change anything about our country to stop being a democracy. We just need to go back to the founding documents and understand, through their use of sort of sleight of hand and 
incorrect definitions of words that we were never meant to be a democracy. That's the sort of idea that is capable of gaining traction among people whose ideas are so outside the mainstream that they could never be implemented through the democratic process. So that talking point is really laying the groundwork for what we've been talking about all day today, minority rule, and why, besides their ideas being deeply unpopular, would the far right in America during the Cold War need to start talking about the need for minority rule in order to save the country from the oppression of majority rule? It's basically one answer with two parts. Actual communism and the New Deal era, which they saw as communism. The left, they believe, should in no circumstances be allowed to control the country because they're all communists, according to the John Birch Society. And once you come to the conclusion that everyone on the left is a communist, then you come right back to where we started. The left clearly doesn't understand human nature. Just look at communism. From each according to his ability to each according to his need, if that's what the left believes, then they must not understand anything about human nature. They will chant gleefully. And from there, it sort of stuck. That idea remained in the conservative zeitgeist through the decades, right up until a week or two ago, when I received a call from a very nice, very well-meaning conservative who just wants to explain a few things about how the left doesn't understand human nature. And these kind of talking points, it's a republic, not a democracy, and the left doesn't understand human nature, are actually strategies for not having to deal with issues and arguments head-on, not having to argue directly, but instead simply undermining the legitimacy of one's opponent so that no argument is necessary. It's actually a classic logical fallacy of an ad hominem attack, but it's cloaked in respectability. It's not saying, you're a terrible person, so I don't have to pay attention to you. It cloaks it in this sort of veneer of, well, I'm just explaining some of the realities of the world, and according to the realities of the world, you are not someone who needs to be listened to. The John Birch Society couldn't really argue against the success of New Deal policies that helped create a robust middle class, so instead they tried to discredit it by calling it communism, and the right has never stopped doing that since. After a while, when the hunt for communists was pretty well discredited in the wake of McCarthyism, they switched to saying socialism. But that was a distinction without a difference for their purposes. If you call universal healthcare socialism, then you don't have to debate the better health outcomes and lower price tag on the merits. Same with higher taxation of the rich and corporations. Same with all of the actions needed to combat climate change and programs to give housing to the houseless. But then there are the policies that just don't quite fit the scary socialism framework, like redirecting funds from police forces to community improvement and support efforts. For those kinds of ideas, there's always the helpful fallback of well, liberals don't understand human nature. And so again, there's no need to debate the merits or policies with someone who is so obviously unqualified to make policy that they live in a fairy tale world of everyone acting just as they should just because we asked nicely, which is a very close paraphrase of what David actually said on his call. But just to reiterate, I don't think David 
was doing any of those things consciously. He didn't invent those talking points, and I don't believe for a second that he was consciously trying to gaslight everyone with his comments. I think he fell victim to those talking points, was sort of infected by them throughout his political education, and the result of falling prey to talking points designed purely to discredit an opponent is that you sort of turn your brain off and never deal with ideas because the talking points have convinced you that there's no need. But this leads to lazy thinking, assuming the worst in others, and ultimately making straw man arguments like the ones made against defunding the police. I've never heard a conservative address the idea of redirecting funds in ways that would better serve the community, something that many police are in favor of, by the way. Only the straw man idea that liberals want police to disappear tomorrow with the magical thinking that people would stop committing crimes. Discredit the source, turn off your brain, assume the worst, and ignore everything the other side says. It is a hell of a debate tactic. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.